0: Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid Valley Mutations proudly present Dime Store Radio Theater. (laughs) Our first installment this week, Box Thirteen, with the Great Torino.
1: Box 13, with the star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd, as Dan Holliday.
2: Box 13, Care of Star Times. I know my life is in danger. I think you can help me. I'm desperate and don't dare go to the police. Please, if you want to help, call at the Tivoli Theatre box office for the ticket left there. Our handbill will tell you more.
3: Our handbill will tell you more. Yeah, that's the way it started. The note from the girl, Maria. The theater ticket. And then... Murder.
0: Box 13 is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week... Brought to you by the U.S. Postal System. For all your mailing and shipping needs. Unglamorous envelopes. Efficient staff. Incredibly long lines. And let's not forget post office boxes. Like the one featured in our program. The U.S. Postal System. Try it. You'll like it. Promise. Now, we return you to Box 13. Here. On Dime Store Radio Theater.
1: And now, back to Box 13.
3: It was Thursday when I received a letter from Maria through Box 13. Some of the letters I get are from cranks, some from people who are just curious about a reporter turned fiction writer who advertises adventure wanted, will go any place, do anything. But with this one, it was just like Susie said.
4: Gee, Mr. Holliday, it doesn't look like one of those crank letters or somebody that's just curious thinks you're crazy or something.
3: How can you tell, Susie?
4: Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's just female ignition.
3: There's a dictionary over there, Susie. Look up ignition.
4: Don't you know what it means, Mr. Holliday? Hmm. It's, it's when a woman...
3: Skip it, Susie, skip it. Oh, okay. I'm supposed to pick up a ticket for tonight's show at the Tivoli. Take a look at this handbill. Torino. The great Torino. Like his look, Susie?
4: Well, mm, I don't know.
3: That's what I thought. Okay, Susie, close up shop for the day.
4: You're gonna follow it up, huh?
3: That's the general idea, yes. I want to see what Maria has on her mind and why she's afraid. (laughs) This was it. I pick up the ticket at the Tivoli. A big poster told me this was a charity affair with the Axe doing a two-night stand. Tickets, ten dollars a throw. I circled around the lobby, looked at the acts advertised, singers, dancers, a dog act, and then there it was. A big life-size cut out of the great Torino, complete with mustache and goatee. Nice-looking guy, maybe too smooth-looking, but it was what he was doing that made me take a better look. He held a rifle to his shoulder and was aiming it across the lobby at another cutout. And this one? This one was a girl. Pretty? Mm Mm-hmm. Big eyes. Maybe a little scared looking. And looking straight across at the great Torino. And right into the barrel of that rifle pointed at her head. Well, if this was Maria, she had a right to have something on her mind. Anybody who stands up and lets a rifle be fired at her is earning a living the hard way thinking about it when the call buzzes izzed in my ear. I drifted in with the crowd during the overture and took my seat. First for all, right on the aisle. Easy to get at. An usherette shoved a program in my hands. The Great Torino was scheduled next to closing. Okay, that meant I'd have to sit through the rest of the acts. I did. It was skipping. But the Great Torino was something different. He had two assistants, a girl and a good-looking young guy. It was a magic act with class, and Torino was clever with his hands. (laughs) He did a trunk effect that was really great, and the girl who helped was the same girl whose cutout was in the lobby. Torino tied her with a rope, slipped a big canvas bag over her, and locked her in a trunk. He fired a shot, and bang, the girl came running down the aisle. And the trunk she was put in, well, Empty. All done in a split second, too. The great Torino took his bow. But I noticed something. When he reached out to take the girl's hand and bow with her, she managed to be busy at something else. Okay. She didn't like him. He gave her a funny look, then walked to a rack and picked up a nice nickel-plated rifle. I sat up in my seat because the girl threw a quick look at me and a tiny nod. No one would have noticed it but me. I I looked back at Torino... Was
5: Ladies and gentlemen, I wish to call your attention to my final effect, a most dangerous one, so dangerous that few illusionists will attempt it. The history of the magician's art has recorded several deaths during the feat. My assistant will go into the audience now and select a committee of volunteers who will please come upon the stage. Maria, if you
6: please.
3: So the girl was Maria. I guess my cue is to be selected as one of the committee. I raised my hand. She picked me. I went on the stage with four others from the audience. Stood there while Torino went to the footlights and spoke again. Uh,
5: please, the music. No music. Please, no music. Thank you. Now, ladies and gentlemen. I shall give the gentlemen of the committee this rifle. It may be examined thoroughly. Also, three bullets, which they may mark later for identification. Gentlemen, the rifle. And here, the bullets. Uh, Please mark the lead in any way you choose, unmistakably.
3: We took the rifle and the bullets. And the great Torino, well, he had the audience sitting on the edges of their seats. No one knew exactly what was going to happen, and Torino wasn't going to tell them until the right time came. Then one of the other men on the committee spoke to me. And, uh, bullets look okay to you? Yeah, as good as any bullets can look. 22s, huh? Yeah.
1: How do we mark them? Initials? Yeah, yeah, good idea. The three of us cut our initials in the lead. That all right with you, mister? Good.
3: How about the rest of you? Suits me. I've got a knife. Here. Yeah,
1: let me see the rifle.
3: Yeah, sure, here.
5: Rifle look okay? No gimmicks?
1: Well, not that I can see. All right, my, my initials are cut in the bullet. Uh, you want to cut yours?
3: Oh, yes. I cut my initials, D.H., in one of the bullets. So we had three bullets with initials cut in the lead. No chance for substitution. Then Torino took the rifle and the bullets.
5: Thank you, gentlemen. tanto. You are satisfied? Uh, sure, I am. Yes. Good. Now, if you will all watch closely, I shall load the bullets in the rifle. So, and uh, what is your
3: name, sir? Holiday.
5: Good. Then, uh, Mr. Holiday, if you will please hold the loaded rifle until I am ready for it.
3: Oh, sure, sure.
5: In this way, there can be no trickery. Ladies and gentlemen, you saw me load the market bullets, yes. So, and you have the loaded rifle. Good. Now, ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce once more Maria. Maria? The young lady is as courageous as she is lovely. Maria, you will take your place, please. Mr. Holiday, would you care to shoot at Maria?
3: Oh, no. No, thank you.
5: <laughs> then that leaves it up to me. No. The rifle, please. Oh, here you are. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall ask for complete quiet. <clears throat> thank you. Maria? You are ready?
2: Yes, I'm ready.
3: The great Torino walked to the other side of the stage. He raised the rifle to his shoulder, pointed it at Maria. She was pale as death. Her arms were tense, tight. Perspiration stood out on her forehead, and on mine, and on everyone in the audience. Then, Oh! oh, oh. so help me, this is what happened. A bullet appeared between Maria's teeth. She let it drop to a plate. She held it in her hands, then... <laughs> and two more bullets popped between her teeth and fell to the plate. No one in the audience moved. No applause, just that tense feeling. Torino walked over, took the plate. His hands never touched the bullets. I'll swear to it. He walked to me and the other three men with me, and...
5: gentlemen. You will please to identify the bullets, yes? This one. Initials T.G. Uh, that's,
1: that's me. Yeah, yeah, that's mine, all right.
5: Thank you. And uh, this one. K.R. Mine. Thank you. And the third. D.H.
3: That's mine. How did he do it? I don't know. All I know is that when I walked off the stage, Maria managed to get a note into my hands. When I read it later, it asked me to meet her at a little coffee shop about three blocks from the theater. All right, that's what I did. We sat in a booth, back out of the way, and Maria talked.
2: Thank you for coming, Mr. Holliday.
3: That's all right, Maria. I saw a great act, but what am I doing in it?
2: You can help me. Please help me.
3: How? Doing what?
2: You can keep Torino from killing me. More coffee? Didn't you hear me?
3: Oh, sure. Sure, but I don't get it.
2: You saw the act. The rifle trick.
3: Yeah, it was great.
2: Then you must see how easy it would be for Torino to kill me while doing it.
3: Slow up a little, Maria. Let's start from the beginning.
2: All right. You saw the other assistant.
3: You mean the good-looking kid?
2: That's Billy. I love him, and he loves me.
3: Then what's your problem?
2: Torino. He hates Billy. Billy. And he hates me for loving Billy. Jealous? Insanely.
3: Well, quit then.
2: I will. After tomorrow night's performance.
3: But why wait if you're afraid?
2: I won't be afraid if you're there. What could I do? Be on the committee again. If I think anything's wrong, I'll signal you. And then? Do anything. Drop the rifle, but don't give it back to Torino.
3: Now, wait a minute. How could he kill you?
2: He'd claim it was an accident. Three magicians or their assistants have been killed accidentally doing the trick. The mechanism of the gun goes wrong.
3: Giving away secrets, Maria?
2: I have to. There's a mechanism in the breach of the gun. It drops the real bullets down into Torino's hand when he closes the breach.
3: Oh, then I get an unloaded gun.
2: There are blanks in it. The mechanism substitutes them for the real bullets. Hmm.
3: That's good. And he slips the real bullets to you.
2: Yes. When he takes my hand to introduce me.
3: And you slip them into your mouth?
2: While the audience is watching Torino and the rifle.
3: I see. Maria. Yes? Why don't you go to the police?
2: Torino would know. He'd know. How? He watches me.
3: Then aren't you afraid he's watching now?
2: No. Not tonight. I slipped away. I don't think I could manage it again. Don't you see, Mr. Holliday, you're my only chance. I saw your ad in the paper, Box 13.
3: You mean the police would ask him questions and he'd lay low until he got the chance to...
2: Yes. Will you be there tomorrow night, Mr. Holliday? Look, I have a ticket for you here. The same seat. Please. Please.
3: All right, Maria. I'll be there.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
3: And we'll try to keep the trick from being trumped by the great Torino. <laughs>
0: 613 13 is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by the U.S. Postal System. Certainly, these modern forms of communication are clearly fads. They barely work and don't even seem to actually reach the person you're trying to get in touch with. It's as if the future is just confusing. Why not settle on sending a letter instead? Anything that can be said now can also be read four or five days from now. The US Postal System. We're trying. Honest. Now we return you to Box 13 here on Dime Store Radio Theater.
1: And now back to Box 13 with Alan Ladd as Dan Holiday.
3: Well, it sounded like a great assignment From the way the setup looked from where I sat It gave the great Torino a perfect chance to kill Maria I checked on Maria's story about the accidental deaths during the trick And Jonesy at the Star Times verified it A smart cookie like Torino could fake an accident And who's going to pin the black ribbon on him? Nobody Okay, it's up to you, Holiday, to figure it out night I sat in the same seat and watched Torino go through his act. The trunk thing, still great, knocked the audience off their seats. Me too. Couldn't figure it. But the big stuff was still to come, the rifle trick. I went on the stage, kept my eyes on Maria. I marked one of the bullets again. Oddly enough, Torino didn't seem to recognize me. That was all right with me.
5: And now, ladies and Torino
3: went through his same spiel word for word. I kept my eyes on Maria. But it was as though she'd never seen me before in her life. She looked. Well, it sounds silly, but she looked hypnotized. Then I heard Torino saying to me,
5: "Mr. Holiday, would you care to shoot at Maria?"
3: No, thank you. Torino looked at me hard. My name and my face together might have tipped him. There was a funny look in his eyes. I stared at Maria. Not a sign from her. Maria, you are ready?
2: Yes,
5: I'm ready.
3: I relaxed a little. She hadn't given me a sign. Everything was all right, and then... Ah! Maria! Maria! She dropped. Maria dropped. And right between her eyes, a little round hole. Look, Holiday. Is that straight, that story? Sure it is, Kling. She was afraid she'd be killed. But you say she didn't give you a high sign. No, she didn't even look at me. But she told you if there was anything wrong, she'd tip you. Yes, but she didn't tip me. Okay.
7: Sergeant. Yes, sir, Lieutenant.
3: Get Torino over here.
7: Yes, sir. All right, you. Lieutenant Kling wants you.
3: Any ideas, Holiday? I'm dry. Bone dry, Kling. What about this guy, Billy, she told you about? I told you. I okay. tell you, it
5: was accident. Accident. Something she was go wrong. Uh, please. Quiet. Listen. Now, it look. It's accident. No. She's wrong accident that <sighs> happened. You're so, uh, I am an artist. You tell me I do something wrong. No, no, no. It is Holy wrong. Holy mackerel. Mac Sergeant. A times Sergeant. Yes, sir. In, in, Put in, this guy uh, in his dressing in Europe, room and keep him there until he blows off that head of steam. Wrong, you know. But watch his door. listen to me. And the window
6: from outside. Yes, sir. Come on, Houdini. Come
3: on. It's funny, Clint. I'm hysterical. I don't think. What's funny? The girl, Maria. I don't think she knew me tonight. She looked right at me. Didn't give me a tumble. Yeah? So? She told me she'd signal me if anything was wrong. I... I don't get it. But it looks as though she... She what? She deliberately let Torino fire a gun she knew was set to kill her. Oh, that makes great no sense. Here, I know. No sense at all. And Besides You're that, Maria,
5: they're... Get away with it. You're gonna yeah. let him tell you it was all an accident. Well, don't believe it. He killed
3: her. That's Billy. Kling. What? Let me ask him a couple of things. Now, look, Holiday, I'm in charge of this case. You're in on a rain check. Okay, but I'm in, huh? Yeah, for the one reason that Maria told you about it, and he I... He
5: killed her. It wasn't an accident.
3: Oh, I'd better go help the sergeant. Any objections if I mosey along with you? None. Just keep your mouth closed, that's all. Sure. All right, Kling. So I listened while Kling asked questions. But there was something knocking at the back of my head. Asking to be let in. Something I'd seen, heard, remembered.
6: I didn't know. But what bothered me
3: was Maria not giving me a signal. When she said she'd know if Torino was up to something. Billy answered Kling's questions. No,
5: no. All I know is that Torino bluffed Maria. He said he'd kill her if he saw me hanging around her. Who loads the rifle with blanks? Maria. Maria. Does she do it tonight? She always does it.
3: Maria loaded the rifle herself. She did. Before the performance. So I got an idea. I left the stage where the investigation was going on. And I walked backstage toward the dressing rooms. I wanted to talk to Torino. But there was a large blue cop sitting at the door. He looked at me and... Well, Holiday. Oh, Hi, Murph. I feel lousy. No, oh, that's too bad. Uh. Say, think I could talk to Torino? No. Oh, now, look, you can watch and listen, tell Kling everything that goes on.
5: <laughs> playing detective holiday?
3: Nope, playing a hunch. What about? Why not listen and find out, and if you learn anything, tell Kling. And you might learn something good. You mean something that might break the case? Yeah, might. Well, well... Uh, What's the matter, Murph? Can't you use a couple of stripes? Aye, sure. Oh,
7: okay. But I'm standing right here, understand. Sure. Right Hey you, get up and Oh
3: brother, look
6: huh.
3: Ain't nobody gonna ask him no questions No, I don't think he's in any shape to answer
7: A promotion you say, a promotion I'll be lucky if
5: I fouled up for good This guy's been knifed right under my nose
3: That's right somebody stabbed Torino. He was as dead as Maria. And nobody saw anybody go in or out of the dressing room. There was one window. It was open. But the officer outside swore he had his eye on it. Hmm. Nobody in or out. And nobody in the room but Torino. The knife was in his back, so suicide was out. Clegg and his boys turned the room upside down. Torino's apparatus and funks were shoved around. Still nobody. And it turned out nobody had a motive for killing Torino except Billy.
5: Me? Me? Are you crazy? I never left the stage. I was talking to you. I was answering questions. I can't be in two places at once, can I?
3: He was so right. Kling was tearing his hair. Then more questions. The rest of the acts were strangers to Torino. Torino. Knew nothing about him. I was thinking about it when something hit me. Something Billy had said. While Kling was still firing questions, I got to a phone. Hello? Oh, hiya, Kenny. Still running that private eye? Swell. Do something for me, will you?
6: Hmm?
3: Okay. Put a man on the Tivoli Theater right now and get him to tell a guy named Billy. Huh? Here's what he looks like. About 5'9", stocky, light complexion, wearing gray suit.
4: Good morning, Mr. Holliday.
3: Hiya, Susie. Any messages?
4: Uh Uh-huh. The detective agency called.
3: And what? What's the message?
4: Uh, Oh, I wrote it down shorthand. Here. Uh... Trail Billy in shoe... No, wait a minute. Ooh, terrible ink. Uh, oh, I got it. To insurance company this morning. He placed claim for double indemnity policy for his wife, Maria Baker. Hey, hey wait a minute, Mr. Holiday. That's not all. That's
5: enough. I'll see you later, Susie. <laughs>
7: Oh, Terino, huh? Step on it, Jonesy. Oh, you want odd facts, it takes time to find them, Even in the morgue of start Times.
3: Okay, Jonesy, okay, but hurry up, will you?
7: Ah, uh, here we are. Torino, born Italy.
3: Uh, skip that. How long has he been in the country?
7: Uh, six months. Noted magician in Italy and Europe before the war.
3: Only six months? Now, uh, Jonesy, if you were a magician, you wanted assistance. How would you get them?
7: Advertising a billboard, magazine for
5: show folks. What else?
3: Hmm. Where can I see the last six months' copies of the billboard?
5: All right, I got a local office in town. All the copies you want. Hey,
3: where you going?
5: Thanks, Jonesy. you will
3: be seeing you. I've got a lot of reading to do. Six months' copies of the billboard. I looked through every one of them, and when my eyes were falling out of my head, I saw it. An advertisement. The one I wanted. And the one that tied up was something Billy said and something I saw during Torino's act. I tried to get Kling on the phone, but no dice. He was out. I left word for him to meet me at the Tivoli, and I went there myself. There was nobody there but the watchman. The five-dollar bill got me in. Oh, there's no place gloomier than backstage in an empty theater. I headed for Torino's dressing room because I had a good idea how someone got in and stabbed Torino, then disappeared. I opened the door, stepped inside. It was dark. The shade on the window must have been down. I was fumbling for the light switch when somebody pulled the shade on me. I do. Slugged your holiday. Yeah, Cling, I have. All right. Who? Billy, maybe. No dice. He didn't come near this place. We had a tail on him. Did you know about the insurance? Sure. But he couldn't have killed his wife because she loaded the blanks into the gun. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And the medical examiner's report on the bullet that killed her? What about that? 22. And no initials on it? No, none. So it looks like this Maria deliberately planned her own death. It wasn't an accident. If it had been, the bullet in her head would have been marked. Put out a dragnet. For, for who? For the one who slugged me. Now cut it, Holiday. If you know anything, spill it before I lose my temper. Who do you want to pick up? Here's a description. Young woman, about 26. 26. Brown hair. Brown hair. Lovely blue eyes. Blue eyes. About five foot two. Five foot two. Worked as magician's assistant. Hey, what are you giving me? That's Maria. Uh huh, Maria. She's dead, you dope. You mean her twin sister's dead, Cling? Twin sister. What are you talking about? The trunk effect Torino worked. Could have only been done with twins. Billy tipped me off on it. Billy? Sure, when he said nobody could be in two places at once. And Torino advertised in the billboard for twins. You are dreaming this. Put out a dragnet for Maria. Who stabbed Torino? Maria. She got her twin sister to take her place in the rifle trick last night. That's why I didn't get a signal from her. The sister didn't know me from Adam. Now, look, Holiday, we searched this dressing room. There was nobody in it when Torino was stabbed. Maria was here. Look. False back in this cabinet. Good old magician's gimmick. She was here all the while. Maria and Billy took out an insurance policy on her and planned to make me the patsy. Because I'd testify that she told me Torino hated her, that she was scared. Torino was knifed to keep him from spilling about the twins. Billy was in the clear on that. Because he had an alibi when Torino was killed. Okay, Clean? I. uh, Okay. We'll put out a dragnet. Sheena's
0: jungle. Mid-Valley Mutations has been bringing you Box 13. Brought to you by the U.S. Postal System. Certainly the price of postage keeps going up, and it's almost like we can't control it or something. So what we recommend is picking up postage today. Investing in postage now is like investing in your future, except you can only use the stamps on sending letters. Through us! The U.S. Postal System. Come on, we've got to make money somehow. We now return you to the conclusion of Box 13.
4: And they got her, Mr. Holliday?
3: Yeah, Susie, they got her.
4: Gee, sounds just like a story. Uh Uh-huh. Only nobody will believe it.
3: Look, I've got a knot on my forehead to prove it. Oh.
4: <laughs> well, does that
3: make you hysterical?
4: No, but I was just thinking. <laughs> Don't be
3: reckless, Susie. What about?
4: I was just thinking. With that bump, you'll have to wear off-the-face hats for a while.
3: <laughs> You're a great help. Good night, Susie.
1: Next week, same time, Alan Ladd stars as Dan Holliday in Box 13. <laughs> Alan Ladd appears through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures and may currently be seen in Wild Harvest. Box 13 is directed by Richard Sandville with original story by Russell Hughes and original music composed and conducted by Rudy Schrager. The part of Susie is played by Sylvia Picker. This is a Mayfair production.
0: Radio Theater will continue in just a moment after this brief musical interlude. Welcome to Dime Store Revelations, the show within a show, where uh, we try to give you a little bit of background about uh, what's going on and uh, what to make of all of it. And you know, we're having a lovely time in the chat today, uh, talking about uh, the um, bullet uh, gun trick uh, that is described in today's episode of Box Thirteen. Uh, talking about various different people who have performed it over the years, I have a, a vivid memory of Houdini writing about it in uh, one of his uh, biography books, uh, mentioning like how he did that particular trick. Maybe uh, it's maybe this is one of those like weird um, uh, Bernstein Bernstein uh, kind of um, situations where I just. I have a weird false memory or something, but I feel like Houdini did it. Um, Mr. Fab is saying that Penn and Teller uh, do a version of it in their live show, and that that rings a bell, too. I think maybe I saw that one as well. Um, And uh, I think Listener Robert uh, was talking about uh, how they do a version not only in Lost, but uh, in a few other um, places, too. So uh, Interesting uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. Box 13 uh, is one of those very um, meta shows, I guess is the best way of putting it. Um, It it, it seems to me anyway that um, uh, they often like to go for a little bit of a reference that is uh, you know like we're going to make a joke about the music vaguely or some other kind of thing. Uh, uh, For example in today's episode they were borrowing some of the theme music from Box 13 to be the theme music for when they go to see the magic show. And they did that also in the episode when they go to see a radio show being put on. Um, And there's other kind of things where dan holiday is looking for story ideas for his novels and then he goes out and has an adventure that we hear about and then supposedly there's a book adaptation of this adventure that he later publishes uh afterwards so uh, i'm always kind of curious about how uh, there, there's this kind of like strange meta layer i think is the best way of putting it to um dan's adventures um So uh, I I always appreciate uh, a a good Box 13 narrative now and then. But, you know, uh, today, uh, you know, I uh, have another one of those kind of shortened Voyage of the Scarlet Queen uh, episodes that are coming. Um, I I mentioned this last episode. I think we've talked about this a couple of times. There's two missing episodes of Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. Unfortunately, I do not have scripts. If I had the full scripts for both of these episodes... We would be doing something differently, <laughs> uh, but so I have these abbreviated versions. If, for some uh, how magical reason, I come into those scripts uh, someday, then uh, maybe I will um, do a, a fully uh, dramatized version uh, for y'all. That w- that would be very fun, and I, I would like to do that. So, uh, but instead today we have a, a shortened version read by me of uh, the dead man and the Boak idol. And uh yeah, you know, that's kind of um what we're gonna get here in a moment. Um and, and uh if I remember correctly, uh I have I have to look this person up because I have to need to thank them. Um because uh they uh went to a library <laughs> uh and found these missing episodes. And then uh not only that, um They went and, uh, uh, summarized them, uh, for a newsletter. (laughs) Uh, and so, um, oh gosh, that's not the right one. Oh, where is it? You think you have your stuff, uh, prepared, and then you don't. Um, oh boy. Well, anyways, uh, yeah, so uh, there's two missing episodes, uh, and I, I used a particularly, uh, useful summarized version. Uh, if I can find it, I'll mention it at the next break. How about that? Um. But anyway, uh, uh, so uh, that's coming here in a few moments. But uh, I thought I would talk a bit today uh, about um, how it is that we have recordings of all this stuff uh, here in the modern age. Um, And it's largely due thanks to uh, transcription disks and people who collect and trade and then later digitize uh, them for us. This story is a little bit uh, entangled with the story of how radio came to be and also about the history of sound recording um and all of those uh things the transition from acoustic recording to electrical recording all those things much more complicated stories than i can offer in oh let's say 15 minutes (laughs) so uh instead i'm going to recommend a a book called uh, perfecting sound forever which uh Covers mostly the recording side of things, and touches on a little bit about transcription discs and uh, radio technology and whatnot. Uh, and then um, there is a, a, you know, a few different uh, uh, documentaries um, out there. Um, uh, but uh, oh, oh gosh, and his name is going to escape me uh, at, at the moment. Uh, oh, the uh, um, hmm, maybe I can. Uh, um, delay here while I, I i look this up um uh, but uh yeah um uh there's a, a plenty of wonderful sources that you can look up uh to find out more information about uh well all of this stuff um but uh uh, uh there is uh, in particular a good ken burns documentary about the history of radio um that uh i think you can get on most of those uh, opb pbs uh apps uh and whatnot um I know there were chunks of it on YouTube uh, uh, at one point or another, Um, uh, but I think it was called An Empire of Air, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, yeah, those are all good sources for kind of getting uh, versions of this story. I'm going to give you a very short version of it today. Uh, So um, there are plenty of people that we need to credit for uh, the creation and uh, development and discovery of how radio could work uh, in the way that it does now. That is a very complicated story. I don't think that I have time to do. (laughs) So let's just say that there were a lot of people working in this area of broadcasting and radio and developing different pieces of technology that were all combined together to create radio broadcasting in the form that we know it now. Um, The uh, first uh, radio broadcast that most people more or less agree happened was in 1906 uh, by uh, Reginald Fessenden one of the people that has uh, uh, played a, a bit of a role uh, in developing different technologies uh, that could uh, later be applied to radio broadcasting. Um, and then uh, kind of skip around. There's that first early era, basically between 1906 and, oh gosh, around 1920, is like the experimental era. Era. This is only really kind of nerds doing it, only really kind of scientists, people who have a lot of technology Usually a shed where they can build a little bit of a studio and uh, a, a place to put their gear that they're using to kind of like, you know, try all this stuff out. And and they're really kind of like hobbyists, just communicating back and forth with each other um, as much as they can uh, using the gear that they had then. And And consider the era, there wasn't any radio waves already in existence. So you could really reach out with very minimal gear and talk to people from all over the world. Anyway, let's flash forward to 1920, uh, the very first news broadcast uh, comes out, and that's from uh, Detroit, Michigan, which ends up being kind of a regular series that happens over and over, and that's, I think, why they're calling it the first official one, is because they kept doing it. Um, and then uh, later that same year, in around 1920, uh, we start getting like the very first radio stations with call letters that are broadcasting on a regular basis. Um, now, why is all this important? Well... At the time uh, that you know this is all going on, um, essentially the only way that you could broadcast anything was to do it live in the room. You had to either sing it into a microphone, say it into a microphone, perform it into a microphone. Um, the uh, other technologies around didn't really have the ability to kind of broadcast yet. So um, early radio stations usually had live bands and live actors, uh, and then, of course, live readers and other performers pretty much doing everything. Um, and most of early radio was like that. Uh, now in the terms of sound recording, you know, <laughs> recording technology kind of goes way, way back, probably I think the 1860s if I'm not mistaken, uh, all that stuff is kind of pre-electric and really radio is a post-electric kind of form. So. Most of those early forms of recording don't really work very well for radio recording purposes. Um, uh, But uh, you do get uh, the development of what is kind of known as a a transcription disc, um, electrical transcription disc, as some people called them. Um, And uh, this was very quickly kind of grown out of the technology that Thomas Edison was developing in the kind of mid-20s they initially started out as 12-inch discs, which was massive considering the kinds of things that were being made at the time. Uh, But later, 16-inch discs were better for radio broadcast purposes because you could fit more music, performances, dramas, whatever, on that kind of thing. Uh, And so uh, you started seeing these transcription discs appear around 1924. I mean, this is like a few years into kind of radio being a continuous thing that's happening kind of all over the country. And you can Im- kind of imagine after four years of people doing everything live constantly, the idea of putting this big machine in the room that monopolizes the broadcast for 15 minutes at a time was probably something everybody was very thankful for, <laughs> uh, not that radio stations broadcast all day every day in those days anyway usually a radio station kind of you know had a a set schedule sometime in the morning maybe around 10 a.m they would start and then they usually signed off around 8 p.m or so depending on the station bigger cities had stations that went later that kind of thing anyway uh Once they kind of settled on the 16-inch format for transcription disks, this allowed a number of different kind of things. You could micro-groove them to fit 30 minutes of material on a side so that these things could be used to cover not only 15-minute programs but half-hour programs, which was crazy considering what they had and and, and whatnot. But having one of these machines that could play these disks also allowed you to make transcription discs of your radio broadcasts. So this is when you start seeing a huge influx of transcription discs being made of all sorts of different kinds of programs. I think the very first discs were being distributed were all kind of news-centric. I think the idea of the newsreel in Hollywood really kind of like set the tone for that kind of thing. Uh, But, of course, Amos and Andy, which was a very popular program, became a show that was available to be distributed via transcription disk. And this meant that the people that made Amos and Andy at their particular studio not only broadcast it from there, but they would record it, send out these disks to a number of other radio stations, and then they could broadcast it too. And this was revolutionary at the time. There was no other kind of technology that allowed you to share... Broadcasts like this, until these transcription disc machines were developed, and, and that really revolutionized so much about uh, the way that radio could be done. Uh, some of these shows had up to like 500 subscribers, where they were making 500 copies of these uh, discs uh, to be then uh, sent out to radio stations all over the place. That were then like able to like air content from the East Coast on the West Coast, or vice versa. It really changed the radio game, but it also changed the game in that there were now artifacts of these broadcasts that would survive into the future. Now, the idea of transcription services uh, was something that kind of died out uh, around the 1960s. People kind of stopped using them on a large scale in those days. Some stations in the 70s, started to uh, um, uh, continue to use them, I think, uh, as late as 1971, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, certainly, uh, it was one of those things that, like, Ooh, I'm having some problems with my broadcast signal here. Uh, do apologize if I'm coming in only in one channel. We're going to try to fix that. Anyways, uh, yeah, some stations were using them up until 1971, but more or less the format started to die out around then. And and a lot of factors led to this happening. Um, some of them are pretty obvious. The development of uh, audio tape meant that recording to disc was really not essential anymore. Um, you could get a lot more stuff on tape. It was a lot more flexible format that could then be used to... Uh, send out, in a much smaller size as well. Um, and then tapes could be reused much easier than transcription disks could, which was something that like was very appealing to radio stations that maybe were working on a small budget and didn't necessarily have the money available to keep these transcription services coming into the station. They were they're like, they're like subscriptions. They would send you new disks all the time. But then, of course, you had to pay for them all the time, too. So tape meant you could kind of, like, record your favorite shows, maybe share the discs between you and a few other stations, that kind of thing. Um, So, uh, uh, you know, the military was kind of the last big place that transcription discs were really used heavily. They were easy to transport. They could be sent all over the world. uh, And they sounded pretty good. And they uh, could be used over and over and over again, which meant that those uh, radio stations that were broadcasting mostly just to people who were... Stationed at some remote base and who knows where, we're still able to get radio content that was more or less the same as the rest of the world, uh, or the rest of the United States, I should say. I apologize. Um, and it's actually those military collections that a lot of transcription dis- discs come from. I think almost all of the existing recordings of the Voyage of the Scarlet Queen come from those radio transcription discs, which you know are um, you know very very cool to find. I have a couple that I found for sale in stores myself, which I can't listen to, because I don't have a transcription disc player. Um, but you'll notice them right away. They're 16 inches, they're huge. Uh, so they just don't look like a regular record. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways that these discs were kind of made and whatnot. Uh, and, and depending on the you know era of what you're talking about, um, there were also uh, war supply rationing uh, being applied to the materials that they were making discs from. Uh, and so, like you know, earliest discs were kind of made the same way that Edison-style stuff was made, uh, with like shellac, uh, and then sometimes a wax that would be made, and then a um, metal uh, casting would be made of the wax, and then you would press your transcription discs from that particular casting. Um, but uh, um, in uh, this particular case, uh, they uh, you know um, they ended up having all sorts of different kinds being made, where they would actually have some with this metal core that they would put a kind of like unusual lacquer uh, over that would uh, then take the grooves um, oh yes I'm getting a question here um, discs uh, did precede tape yeah tape was a, a much later um, uh, a form of a de- development um, I think the first time that tape was widely and largely available was in the late 30s uh, whereas disc technology had been around for I think uh, sometime in the teens uh, so uh, yeah yeah um, uh, You're totally right. Uh, Discs ended up being um, replaced by tape, more or less, because they're just easier to use tape. Um, uh, Let me see. What else did I have about transcription discs? Oh, yes. I think the last form that you would find these kinds of discs uh, for use in is that uh, since the 16-inch discs more or less became obsolete because you could fit more on 12 inches, the last era of them... I think, were all 12-inch discs. And you would usually get these in a boxed set where you could find, like, a week's worth of broadcasts all in one box. Um, And I have found a few of those for sale at thrift stores and whatnot, which are are, are fascinating. Um, They're kind of like interesting time capsules into, you know, what broadcasting was like in those eras. Um, But, of course, in the modern day, all of these discs have largely been uh, transcribed thanks to uh, fans who collect them archive them, save them, uh, uh, covet them, uh, and whatnot, and then have uploaded them all to archive.org. Uh, and, uh, lo- most of the time, uh, these days, uh, it-, it is rare that you will find something that hasn't already been transcribed in some ways. Um, I know several years ago they found a, a new transcription disc of War of the Worlds, which revealed, revealed that the version that we normally have been hearing for years and years had a few minor edits nothing longer than like you know 20 or 30 seconds cut out uh but a few little edits to the performance that um just kind of interesting to discover that and so uh every once in a while kind of like when they discover an old doctor who episode they'll find a transcription disc of something and uh well we get to find some new weird interesting old radio from the past So, yeah, that's a little bit of the history of uh, one of the primary formats that you're going to be hearing most of the stuff that we have uh, these days uh, in the modern era from the 40s and 50s. That's where most of this stuff is coming from is discs. And um, there's a lot of them out there and probably more to be discovered. Um, So, uh, you know, uh, uh, eagle-eyed listeners out there, if you are um, a collector... And, and have access to a machine that can play these, maybe you can um, uh, help uh, keep this stuff going too. Um, I'm very curious about the ones I've found. I'm sure that they've already been digitized somewhere, but uh, I'm still looking for a player so I can just hear them. Okay, well, you know, up next we're going to get into our abbreviated version of The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. This is uh, episode number 10. Uh, and then uh, uh, we're also going to hear uh, a little bit of Shondu. And then we're going to take another break before uh, we get into our science fiction program for the evening. So uh, a lot uh, is going on this week here on Dime Store Radio Theater. Uh, And, uh, yeah, just having a lot of fun here trying to keep uh, everyone, uh, uh, you know, abreast of the the way things work. Interesting that I'm discussing technology today on a day that I'm having some tech issues. Uh, Behind the scenes, I did rearrange the Lava Lamp Lounge entirely. Over the last few days, and this is the first broadcast I've done uh, for uh, WFMU since I uh, fixed things, and I clearly uh, fixed things wrong. So <laughs> uh, live and learn, and uh, um, uh, maybe buy some new cables. Uh, so, yes, um, you're probably tired of all the tech talk, and you just kind of want to get back into the fantasy. Well, uh, have I got some news for you? It's coming your way here soon. On Dime Star Radio Theater, Part of Sheena's jungle room. One of the hippest places to be these days. Enjoy. Second installment this week The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen with The Dead Man and the Boak Idol. <laughs> log entry the catch scarlet queen philip carney master position 122 degrees 40 minutes east 13 degrees 22 minutes north wind light sky fair remarks departed port of masbadi 9am after altercation in the Rainbow House. Reason for incident? The Dead Man and the Boak Idol. And so
8: Mutual continues The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tolman, and starring Elliot Lewis. Scarlet Queen, proudest ship to plow the seas, bound for uncharted adventure. Every week a complete entry in the log, and every week a league further in the strange voyage of the Scarlet Queen.
0: During a storm, on the way from Manila to Masbati in the Philippine Islands, Lookout Nielsen and the Scarlet Queen spots a Moro Outrigger dugout canoe with a badly wounded unconscious man in it. Carney has the crew lift the entire canoe with the man still in it on the queen and is able to revive the man. The gravely wounded stranger tells Carney to give his father and Ma's body the boat, but is unable to tell the skipper who his father is before he dies. From his effects, the identity of the man is determined to be Clement N. Russell. There is a business card with a Ma's body address and a name, Maxwell Nathan. There are also some rocks that might be ore samples. After turning over the body to Ma's body officials, Carney goes in search of Maxwell Nathan. He finds him in the office of the Malayan Company. Nathan tells Carney that Russell's father is his business associate and is currently in British North Borneo. Nathan mentions that the Malayan Company has been competing against very strong interests for certain gold concessions on Boak Mountain on the island of Marinduke. However, he hires Kearney on another matter to deliver an incredibly valuable wooden Boak idol to Kruger, a heavy, florid man with a dueling scar on his left cheek, who will be staying at the Banton Hotel. The statue is one of a matching pair. Carney is to take Kruger, tell him he knows where the other one is, and without telling him where, see if he is ready to arrange a meeting and complete the deal. Later that evening, Carney and Gallagher find Kruger with two men, Sidney and Remoldus, in the bar of the Banton Hotel. He tells Kruger what Nathan told him to say. Kruger is interested and suggests they go elsewhere to finish their talk about the statue. Outside the hotel, Kruger springs his trap, catching the skipper and his mate unprepared. They are taken at gunpoint by Kruger and his henchmen to a secluded warehouse. Sydney stays with Gallagher in another part of the warehouse. Kruger tells Carney that he knows they found Russell and that he believes the skipper has the second idol. He tells Carney he has been offered $500,000 for the pair and offers Carney 30,000 pesos for the missing statue. Kruger has Ramaldes try to beat the information out of Carney on the location of the second idol. Later, when he comes to another room, Carney sees the thugs drag a badly beaten Gallagher into the room. Sometime later, the conscious sailors hear someone approaching. They get ready to jump whoever enters. It turns out to be an armed Nathan who releases them. He tells them that Kruger and Ramoldez are currently ransacking the Scarlet Queen in their search for the missing idol. Nathan thinks that Carney may have it. Nathan takes the two men to a safe place and provides liquor to revive them and tells them that he doesn't have the second idol. He fills in the two mariners on the background of the statues. They were carved from one of Fernando Magellan's crewmen upon his discovery of the Philippine Islands. He also reveals the Russell was his son and doubles Kruger's offer of 30,000 pesos for the second statue. Carney orders Red to stay with Nathan. Phil returns to the Queen. He believes he knows where Russell hid the idol. He finds it in a compartment in one of the outriggers. He brings the second figure back to Nathan, and the man tells Gallagher and Carney that he and Kruger were competing antique dealers in Germany before the war. Also that Kruger had him falsely imprisoned and stole his wife. He explains that he has lured Kruger to body with information on the idols, and that Nathan is not his real name, and that he has arranged a meeting with Kruger. When Kruger and Remaldez arrive, Red overpowers the henchman. Kruger recognizes his old competitor and offers him $100,000 for the pair. Nathan says he will exact payment on all that Kruger has stolen from him and empties the six shots of his revolver into his enemy. He tells Carney that the idols were a ruse to bring Kruger and that they are actually worthless. Nathan has carved them himself. As a last favor, he asks Carney to summon the authorities. Carney, Gallagher, and the Scarlet Queen head for Hong Kong, and the delayed meeting with his boss, Ku Chai Kang.
5: Drink, skipper. After you, mate. After you.
8: Entry catch scarlet queen wind brisk sky hazy sea smooth with high cross swell mainsail and mizzen reefed ship secured for night signed Philip Carney master Will invite you to sail into further adventure on The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen next week at the same time. The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen stars Elliot Lewis as Phil Carney with Ed Max as Gallagher. Music scored and conducted by Richard Oran. The Scarlet Queen, a command radio production directed by James Burton, is written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tallman. (laughs) Charles Darlington speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.
0: third installment of the evening, we present Shandu the Magician, with Message in the Blue Flame.
9: Shandu the Magician. For your enjoyment, Shandu the Magician.
0: Shandu the Magician is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room, a name you can trust in quality and entertainment, and by Mid-Valley Mutations, radio just like Grandma used to make. Now, let's return to Shandu the Magician.
9: Frank Chandler calls at the home of Princess Naji Dorothy, Betty, and Bob, here in a bazaar in Cairo, an Egyptian storyteller, relate a colorful story of Persia. A moment later, with Dorothy and Bob only a short distance away, the storyteller whispers to Betty that he will find a way to see her again. Dorothy returns just in time to see him before he disappears in the crowd. She cries out that he is wearing a ring which belonged to her husband, Robert Regent. Now, an hour later, the three of them are waiting for Chandler's return to their suite in Shepherd's Hotel. Chandu, the magician.
1: Are you
10: sure about the ring, Mother? Oh, yes, of course I am. I had it made for your father myself. You had it made? Yes. He always liked seal rings. So I had one made for him with a real seal, like the ones men used to sign their letters in the Middle Ages. With a coat of arms or something? It was like that. Except that the seal was made of just his initials, R.M.R. in odd, irregular letters I found in an old manuscript. He must have loved it. He did. He always wore it. Where could that storyteller have got it? Hey, here's Uncle Frank Oh, Uncle Frank, the most mysterious thing just happened in the bazaar
11: Somebody sold you a genuine scarab for a dime
10: Oh, no, this is something real mm-hmm. Altogether too real
11: Dorothy, you've been crying What's the matter? Oh,
10: a storyteller in the bazaar He sat down on the ground and told a story It was about a man named Antar
11: mm, that's one of their stock stories Antar was a legendary hero a thousand years ago.
10: Not this one. The war
11: was in it. This last war?
10: It did sound like it, Uncle Frank.
11: Oh, anyway, then he sang a song. A chintzy thing about gardens and jasmine and
10: stuff. So I thought... Oh, never mind that, dear. Frank, he had on that ring of Roberts. Roberts? And as soon as he heard me say I recognized it, he... He just seemed to evaporate.
11: Well, did he seem to be telling the story to you, or did you just happen along?
10: No, we were there when he began, but I don't know. Yes, you do, Mother. He began the story when he was out in the middle of the street. Don't you remember, Mom? You said he's looking over at us.
11: So he did make sure it was you. Did any of you speak to him?
10: Well, I... No, of course not. Except that I did call after him. Prank... Can't we do
11: something? The only thing to do is wait for him to show up again. Oh, no. We don't even know his name, Dot. He may not even live in Cairo. There are any number of these wandering storytellers about.
10: Oh, but it seems so... so inhuman just to sit here if Robert needs us.
11: I know it does, dear, but remember... He deliberately started to tell you a story. He threw in a mention of the war in the old story of Antar. So I think he was trying to tell you something. You alone without the others in his audience understanding it.
10: I wonder if he was.
11: And you said he sang, too.
10: Oh, yes.
11: That's unusual. Oh, is it Uncle Frank? Well, we wouldn't know that, though. No, but if he thought anyone else suspected what he was doing, he might put them off with a song. These people are always fascinated by their traditional songs.
10: You mean that song was just an old tune? Thousands of years old?
11: Probably. Probably. Why? You don't think he just made it up on the spot for you, I hope?
10: No, only. Dot,
11: I... if this man tried to give you a message and couldn't, he'll find a way to reach you again. Oh,
10: yes, I see now, Frank. You're right. You must be.
11: And now. Listen to my news.
6: Oh, we
10: forgot all about the princess. Did you find her palace? Did you see her? What she like?
11: (laughs) Just a minute, Betty. Of course I found it. I've been there before, you know. When you saved her life? Shortly afterwards, ten or twelve years ago.
10: Before you went to India? Yes. Well, tell us about the palace first.
11: Well, it isn't a palace, Betty. It's a large house in a big walled garden that runs right down to the Nile.
10: Oh, lush and oriental. Oh, tell us all about it. Oh, darling, how can he give him a chance to talk? Oh, I'm sorry. I won't say another word. Ah, uh,
11: well, the place is at the end of a narrow street. Hardly more than a lane. One of the oldest in the city.
10: If she's a princess, why doesn't she live in the King's Palace, Uncle Frank?
11: Well, she doesn't belong to the family of the present reigning house, Betty. Who is she, then? She's the last of a very, very old line, I understand. There's always been a bit of mystery about it.
10: Don't you even know?
11: (laughs) There are lots of things I don't know, honey. Nadia went to school in Europe for a time, I know that. But as I told you, she has the reputation of being... A sorceress.
10: Go on, Uncle Frank, go on.
11: Well, there's a great iron gate in a high wall. I rang the bell and a huge Arab servant let me in.
10: Did he know who you were?
11: He seemed to. He took me through the courtyard and he left me in a great oriental drawing room. Well, I must have waited an hour before he came back. Then, to my astonishment, he said she wasn't there.
10: Why keep you waiting all that time?
11: I can't imagine. Well, where is the princess? Didn't he say? No. I asked as many questions as I could without seeming discourteous I learned exactly nothing
10: But if she expected I'll to bet have... that old roxor has got her Do you think so, Uncle Frank?
11: Well, I think she may have gone away somewhere to get out of his reach
10: You do? Oh, don't you remember what she said to him that night?
11: Oh, well, the night we saw her in the
10: crystal talking to Roxor. Yes Why, it was that conversation that sent us over here she certainly didn't seem afraid of him. I'll say she didn't. She said everybody else
11: could fall over on their faces if he said the word, but not her. Yes, she did. Not in just those words, but...
10: Now, I'll never forget it. He said, if you will not bend, you shall break. Just like everybody else had. And he said who they were. And after that, Nodgie said, the American, Robert Regent, he has not broken. And then... Suddenly, the crystal was blank.
11: Oh, that was because you screamed and broke
10: the spell. Oh, Oh. Bob, don't remind her of it. Well, we may as well face it, Frank. We're in Cairo, and we've come to the end of everything. If we can't find the princess, there's no possible way to find Robert. Oh, the whole thing was a fantastic
11: dream. Not at all. We've come to the end of one road, that's all, Dot. And don't forget this. On our side is all the power of good in the universe. This isn't the end. Far from it.
10: Then what will we do?
11: We'll wait. We'll hear from the princess. I know it. Oh, Frank. Oh, come, Dot. A little oriental philosophy will do you no harm. What is time, anyway? Oh, you see? I was right. We're going to hear from Nadia.
10: Oh, you're spooky, Uncle Frank.
11: Oh, thank you. You see? A letter for me.
10: Is it from the princess?
11: Of course. Here, I'll read it to you. I greet you, Chandu, and those you love who are with you.
10: Oh, well, then she knew we'd come to Egypt, too. Does she say anything about Robert? She says,
11: For a time I must not be seen in Cairo. I know it is best. The time will come when you and I will remove Roxor as the poisonous insect he is. Meanwhile, will you and your family be my guests? They will be safe in my house. Soon I shall return, or you will hear from me. I need not counsel you to be patient, for yours is the wisdom of the East. I salute you, Chandu Najee.
5: Are we
10: going to go there and live in her house? What do you think, Frank?
11: We're going without losing a minute. I want to see you all safely behind those high walls before dark. (laughs)
10: a beautiful room, Mother. The big lamp's like a moon.
11: With a nutmeg grater around it to let the light through.
10: Oh, Bob, you have no soul at all. This time I'll have to agree with you, Betty.
11: Oh, I hope that means dinner. I'm starved. It does. There's Abu in the doorway. Is
10: that his name? He looks fierce, doesn't he?
11: If you will come with me. The princess begs you to make her house your own.
10: What a beautiful table. Rose petals sprinkled all over the cloth. Be good enough to seat yourselves. Effendi, it is well that you have
11: come to this house. You think so, Abu? Why? For many reasons, Effendi. I will order the dinner to be served at once.
10: Hey, Uncle Frank, do you hear? Abu, let dinner wait. What is that, Frank? I have heard. Oh, great one. What made him bow like that all of a sudden? Listen. Listen. It must
11: be... Yes, it is. The blue flame.
10: A ball of blue fire. Floating right down in front of you, Uncle Frank. Out of nowhere.
11: I've often heard of it, but this is the first time I've seen it.
10: There's a picture in it. Water and palm trees. It's a river.
11: The Nile... This must be a message from Noddy. There's a little boat with a pointed sail. Those huts among the trees. That must be the place.
10: I don't see anybody.
11: The message, keeper of the flame. What is the message? Charles, brother of the Lotus, I call you. Noddy's voice. But I can't see her. I
6: am here, Charles
11: on the pathway Is she really there, Frank? No, not yet Come to the place you see, Chandu Follow the pathways to the place you
6: know
11: What does she mean, Uncle Frank? There's something wrong I don't see her and I should
10: Follow the path But beware that you do not take the wrong
11: turning Noddy, Noddy, where are you? Come
6: quickly,
10: Chandu. Death. Death. The picture's gone. And the flame is too. If that was the princess. Of course it was. Did you recognize the place we saw?
11: Very well indeed. Chandu. Listen a minute. Chandu. Chandu. I don't hear anything. I do. And I'm going to that place tonight.
9: Come to a close. Adventure awaits those who follow
0: Shandu the Magician, who will be here again next week for another installment in his wild and exciting adventures. Tune in here on Sheena's Jungle Room. Shandu the Magician is brought to you by Mid-Malley Mutations, radio the way Grandma used to make.
9: the Magician is presented for your enjoyment. Your announcer is Howard Culper. Chandu, the Magician. This is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System.
0: To Dime Store Revelations Part 2 This week And yeah, I do uh, suspect you are correct, Mr. Fab It might have been just Corla mashing the organ keys to get that eerie music in the background of that Shondu episode there But uh, man, I do like the idea that Corla was kind of like into like, oh yeah, this will be eerie You know, like he, he knew he knew. He, he knew what he was doing. <clears throat> yes, uh, the behind-the-scenes show here on uh, Dime Store Radio Theater, and uh, I, I'm going to uh, mention right now that is the last time I'm going to read a summary like that uh, on the program. Uh, not because I don't like doing it, but because uh, that is, I think, um, uh, uh, the only times that I will need to do it. Uh, there's all the rest of the episodes for. Um, uh, 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 Voyage of the Scarlet Queen exist, so uh, we're not in any danger there. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, kind of fun, but uh, you know, uh, certainly I prefer the original broadcasts if I can find them. Now, uh, I did uh, say I was going to look this up. So, uh, the person who wrote those summaries of the Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, Stuart Wright, is his name. He wrote those in 2016 for the newsletter that is so, accompanies uh, the Metropolitan Washington Old Time Radio Club. Uh, looks like the last one that they put out was uh, published in 2017, so I'm not sure if they're still doing newsletters. But a lot of that old content, uh, if you are uh, into weird radio nerdery, is on uh, the um, website, and that is mwotrc.com. So uh, feel free to check that out. Lots of weird uh old radio stuff there for uh for the curious Now, you know, up next we have one of my favorite radio stories of uh all time, uh The Green Hills of Earth. By uh, Robert Heinlein um, a, a, a very fun story And you know, I actually want to talk about that one um, More next week uh, Only because uh, there's a fair amount to say And uh, this week I actually need to get back to what happened last week Because we had the Embassy A story that I was quite fond of And um, I think it's kind of worth knowing A, a few tidbits uh, about uh, The author um, Of that one um, Daniel uh, Wolheim Uh who we did mention uh last week but uh i didn't really kind of get into his uh, story uh, uh, certainly one of the more curious characters uh in science fiction especially in those early days uh, he was an author an editor um and uh, some used to call him the world's biggest science fiction fan although i think uncle Forey might uh contend for one of those positions as well if i uh, remember correctly but I'm not here to settle those kinds of arguments. I'm just here to tell you what's what. Uh, So yeah, um, he had his first story published at the age of 19 in 1934. Uh, And that is when uh, Wolheim started kind of getting this idea that the community around science fiction, which was kind of scattered and unfortunately uh, hard to kind of like concentrate in one area um, because of, you know, magazines weren't really publishing it quite uh, excitedly, as the way that they would in the coming years, it was still kind of fledgling. Getting stuff printed at all was difficult. Uh, so uh, Daniel had this idea that um, all these like kind of fledgling science fiction clubs should get together and kind of have these gatherings where they can kind of talk to each other and get a sense of like what's happening in each of their own local communities. And so uh, when uh, Wolheim organized a meeting of his New York Science Fiction Club. With one that he had found originating in Philadelphia, they met on October 22nd, 1936, and that meeting has been dubbed the very first science fiction convention. The PhilCon convention that is in uh, Philadelphia, uh, which happens to this day, uh, claims to be a direct descendant of that first meeting. So... um, That's kind of a big deal, uh, if uh, I do say so myself. But uh, Daniel did many, uh, uh, Donald, I should say, did many, many other things. Um, Not just that, uh, uh, you know, um, he uh, he was actually the one that founded the uh, um, science fiction group the Futurians Ah. in 1937. Um, This is one of those uh, groups where, like, everybody in it was famous for different reasons. Uh, We have James Blish. Isaac Asimov, Frederick Pohl, uh, the list goes on and on and on. Um, It was uh, one of those uh, places where there was just like everybody who was anybody was hanging out uh, in the Futurians, Um, and so uh, usually they had some sort of showing or presence at most science fiction conventions. uh, After that, Um, Walheim realized that um, you know the way to kind of make science fiction kind of go from this like pulp fiction uh, ghettoized thing was to get in the uh, game himself and so he started uh putting time into uh magazines entirely uh publishing science fiction he actually talked his way uh into uh um getting uh, the abling publications uh company to publish a science fiction magazine in 1941 basically just using his leverage uh and uh um promising to do the editing work himself and that kind of thing um Uh, Later, uh, he was uh, one of the first people to get uh, mass market uh, paperbacks of science fiction stories published in 1943. Um, And uh, his uh, original uh, collection of science fiction short stories that he published um, uh, in that year was the very first time that the word science fiction was published in a title uh, for a book. Um, Which I think the words had been burbling around for a while before that, but I don't think that they had seen print in a title in a big way where you could point to that and say this is science fiction which a lot of people did in 1943 <laughs> uh after the success of the uh paperbacks uh he went into publishing hard covers uh and then worked for a string of different publishing houses that all did a lot of different kinds of science fiction uh avon ace books uh uh, the list goes on and on and on. In fact, uh, Ace uh, is often credited as being one of those places that single-handedly uh, made the paperback popular as a format because they just kept publishing all of this rare science fiction stuff that um, ha- you know had been uh, done in magazines and whatnot, but was like hard to find and whatnot. So these books were like the first place that they was easy to get, and so they were you know sold out, and suddenly the paperback was an important format. For people to you know, publish, uh, and a lot of people credit Ace uh, for doing that, uh, at least kind of um, helping bring it to the forefront in the '50s. Um, Ace was the publisher that Reed introduced Edgar Rice Burroughs to the modern audience. He kind of got, got lost a little bit there between the uh, original publication of the stories uh, in magazines uh, and the, the crowd in the '50s, because you know there was all these like modern artists, authors that were doing a lot of new science fiction. Uh, his stuff, I mean, kind of bordered on science fiction sometimes and was certainly much more pulpy than others. And so uh, it, what people remembered was probably mostly Tarzan. Uh, and, and so Ace was one of those people, uh, uh, publishers, thanks to Walheim, that brought back uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, brought Tolkien to the United States uh, in a paperback release, which apparently uh, the Tolkien family refused. Uh, and uh, Donald published it anyway. Uh, assuming, well, uh, the rights have lapsed in the United States, and so no one can really sue me for this. And I mean, it, it's gonna be in demand, and even if they're turning me down for publishing this, I mean, people want this book. It's really popular. We're, we're gonna make money. Uh, and so he published it anyway, and that actually uh, led to the Tolkien family reversing their opinion on uh, paperbacks in the United States. Um, and so uh, they actually uh, allowed it to happen. And then and, uh, Wolheim, who was making hand over fist over selling those, uh, was not afraid at all to uh, work a deal out, as it were. Some publishers uh, would like to say that uh, Wolheim's uh, determination in getting Tolkien to American audiences kind of led to the fantasy boom that happened uh, in uh, you know later on. Um, you know uh there there was so many people who read those books growing up in the 50s and then kind of you know had their own opportunities to publish stories in the late 60s and 70s and there was just this massive fantasy boom uh that kind of continued all the way through uh until well i mean I, I was working in bookstores throughout the 90s and i mean fantasy novels were selling like hotcakes in those days um and in the late 80s, they were certainly popular when I kind of first started becoming aware of them. Um, Wolheim's role in all of this continued all the way through uh, till his death, basically, where he was constantly working and publishing in different ways, uh, championing new authors, uh, finding people that uh, maybe had kind of slipped through the cracks and had a few uh, stories here and there that were worth kind of like bringing to the public at large. Um but uh, you know, really, uh, just did most of his work behind the scenes. Uh, you know, like aside from getting these uh, short stories published, kind of early on in his career, and then helping other people through editing and whatnot, he was mostly kind of a, a background figure in the world of science fiction. Um, I think him being a fan was really kind of the key to that. I don't think he necessarily liked the spotlight on him. I think he liked to throw these big events where science fiction people would come to them, and then he would get to hang out with them. I think that was kind of like his angle on all of this. And, and, and the evidence kind of seems to support that. I mean, like all of these jobs basically allow him to keep in touch with all of his favorite authors from <laughs> the days of early science fiction. Um, and so uh, it, it also allowed him to keep in touch with new authors and, and stay on top of things. So it, it really seemed kind of like uh uh, when, when you read about Wolheim, he is a fan who happened to kind of fall into doing all these things because he wanted them to exist for himself and they and they didn't exist yet. <laughs> um, and so that, that is what's so exciting about this particular era of science fiction is that you could write a short story one week. Uh, and then you know, like a few years later, it's going to be on an episode of uh, Dimension X because the fan base is so rabid that everyone who works on Dimension X has also read that story. <laughs> uh, so I think there's, I, I think I said this maybe last time. There's a few different versions of the embassy that are out there. This is the first version that uh, you can find, and I think the version that was on Dimension X is a little more serious uh, than most uh, versions that you find. I think uh, future versions kind of find. A little bit of the comedy in that story, and and, and want to bring that uh, forward, um, which which I mean the the Dimension X one is kind of a little more like cut and dry. Um, I would recommend uh, maybe uh, uh, some of the other versions, which uh, probably will play it on this program at some point or another. Let's see. Well, you know uh, today's uh, Dimension X feature. Uh, We're getting into the Heinlein's The Green Hills of Earth. There are many radio adaptations of this one, including an hour-long version that uh, I think CBS uh, Radio Theater did uh, at some point or another. Might be wrong on that detail, so please don't quote me on that one. Um, But, uh, yeah, uh, it's a fascinating story, a lovely story. I've actually done radio versions of The Green Hills of Earth before, where i've kind of chopped it up and rearranged it and done some things with it and there's one version i have where i took every uh copy that i could find of the different performances of the green hills of earth and mashed it into one long mega show that includes all of the different alternate scenes that appear in one version but not in the other one and so on um it's one of those stories where there's, like, so many different uh, adaptations and whatnot that it's kind of hard uh, to pick a favorite, because, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Leonard Nimoy does a reading of one on an, an excellent LP that's very fun. Um, and uh, different radio shows, of course, like to, you know, do the the story from different perspectives and kind of different angles and whatnot. Um, certainly uh, with Heinlein's version of it, though, you can kind of see the the, the populist uh, uh story coming to the forefront. Uh, he, he really liked that idea of kind of like the uh, uh, Woody Guthrie of the spaceways, ways. Um, and, and uh, you know, um, I think he kind of pulls it off pretty successfully. Uh, there are parts of this story that still bring a tear to my eye. And uh, I just, uh, I, I adore it in many, many ways. Uh, so, yeah, that's what we got for our final tale this week on uh Store Radio Theater. And, and I think that is the last time I'm gonna to have to do uh, two breaks like that in a show until our next marathon episode, which uh, uh, I think uh, you know is kind of good because uh, maybe this much talking me direct to the audience is not necessarily what people signed up for. Uh, but I'm having a good time, so uh, there is that. Uh, so yes, uh, please tune in uh, next week. We're gonna have more uh, fun dime store opportunities and things uh, for us to uh, discuss and talk about. Um, and uh, yeah, if you have any questions or uh, uh, comments or actually uh, s- suggestions of things that you would like me to discuss uh, during uh, the Dime Store Revelations segments of our show, uh, or if you want to just you know write a nice little letter and say thank you or what have you, uh, please uh, send all those in. Um, I'll be happy to kind of uh, consider different options and opportunities. I know somebody was saying, uh, I think it was Ellen, um, who commented that they would like to hear a... History of how radio began um, And uh, you know As a uh, listener Robert pointed out There's so many different characters that are often Like neglected and omitted In that story and they all kind of Contribute in different Ways and uh, Forms that it's like it's, it's just a massive story that like Everyone tries And, and, and often times leaves Stuff out and fails to Complete that uh, um, tale so, like uh, yeah, I will do my best uh, to, to summarize it in one of these 15-minute breaks. <laughs> but uh, who knows? Maybe I will find, like, a, an eloquent um, summary that someone else has uh, done, and I can just kind of drop those in in chunks or something. We'll see. Uh, I have tackled this subject before on my other program, uh, Mid-Valley Mutations, where I did a, um, a, a two-hour program of kind of different early radio history but i barely scratched the surface in that two hours and there's so much more to that story that it's it's kind of just like the beginning and and therefore um uh more to come on that subject so uh i think that one's uh, was back a couple months if you want to hear that one and kind of get a sense of of how it all started but um don't count on that as your primary source anyway let's get back into the stories it's our last one dimension x uh for um this particular um uh, tale uh the green hills of earth one of my faves and uh yeah uh, that's gonna do it for me this uh particular time catch me tomorrow on um mid valley mutations where i'm gonna listen to some tiki records and kind of chill out and you know what's good for you you'll be there too be seeing you And final installment, Dime Store Radio Theater presents Dimension X with the science fiction classic, The Green Hills of Earth.
7: Adventures in time and space, transcribed in future tense. Dimension. This is a story of Riesling. The singer of the spaceways. You've probably sung his songs in school. In English, French, or German. The language doesn't matter. But it was an earth tongue. But the real story of Riesling is not found in the footnotes of a scholar's critique or a publisher's biography. It is in the memories of the old-time spacemen. The pioneers who pushed the thundering old-fashioned rockets to the far strange ports that are our commonplace heritage. These men know the true story of Riesling.
12: The arching sky is calling spacemen back to their trade. All oh, hands stand by free, Falling and the lights below us fade. Out ride the sons of terror, leaps the race of me far and onward yet
0: Dimension X is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and mid Valley Mutations and this week Acme Brand Mechanicals. With the new upgrade in OS 6.2, you'll find that your mechanical now has the ability to follow voice commands accurately instead of what would happen previously. Acme Brand Mechanicals. What could possibly go wrong? And now, back to Dimension
6: X.
7: When I first met Riesling, he was hustling drinks in the Twin Moons bar at Drywater, Mars. He'd won a guitar off a Chinese barkeep at Luna City by cheating at one thumb. And he made his whiskey by singing in the bar and passing the hand. Listen to her, Hudson. Don't she strum pretty? Like a 16-year-old uh, uh, gal. Say, how much did you collect on that last song? Three dollars, Marsha, and a slug. Al grabbed it from a bill. You don't trust me no more. Uh, Funny. Never did have no luck with hound dogs nor Martian barking. Hey, Riesling, look over there by the bar. There's an Institute for striper giving in the eye. Know him?
6: Captain Hicks off the goshawk. He's sure giving you the once over. Maybe he's got a job.
7: <laughs> they don't make never no mind to me. I've been blacklisted. Hicks logged me for making up a song on watch. Right, fine song, too. Uh, hold it. Here comes the brass arm. Uh, Riesling, uh, I've been looking for you. I've been right here, skipper. You saw of that? I need a jet man on the goshawk. Interesting. Real interesting. Well? I got news for you, Skipper. You blacklisted me, remember? Well, you kept your nose clean, and uh, we need an experienced man. Been a little changing down in the goshawk, ain't there, Skipper? How'd you know that? You got that new atomic pile drive. Last three of them tea kettles blew somewhere in the asteroids. Look, it's double pay, but if you're scared... Scared? Listen, fella. For double pay, I'd jump off the top of the Harriman Tower if you allowed me rubber heels for the landing. All right, then. You show up tonight to sign the book. Sober. Got no choice, Skipper. Money and me is total strangers. We lift at 11.30 Mars time. Sober, you understand reasoning? <laughs> you taking the jump? Well, that yeah. goshawk yeah. is one stinking old tub. Her engine's got more bugs than a beagle dog in spring. And that new drive is about as safe as a pretty gal in the Ozarks. <laughs> but I reckon she'll do for one more trip. Pat. welcome home, Riesling. Hi, Jimmy Legs. Meet on? my friend Hertzman. He's signing on as a Wiper. This is Jimmy Legs Casey. <laughs> He's boatswain. Can't hold his liquor no more than a sieve, poor boy. (laughs) Hey, Casey. You think? You uh, sober enough to sign the book? Drunk or sober, i make my mark. Stand aside. Uh, Three X's. (laughs) Took me a middle name. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you two lay below. And Hertzman. Aye, sir. Get him sobered up before the skipper makes rounds. Jimmy Legs, I'm sober as a hanging judge. Yeah? Well, you can leave that bottle here. What bottle? The one in your back pocket. Oh, glass buttons, maybe, huh? (laughs) Give it here. Jimmy Legs, I swear I'm going to write a song about you. Go ahead, threaten me. Now get below. We raise ship in 30 minutes. Skipper, Breesling, what the devil are you doing up here on the bridge without permission? Figured I'd take a little stroll. Breesling, get below no, before. No, no, I hold am. on, Skipper. You'll have that gold bridge just crawling up your arm. I'm up here on business. Well, that number two jet ain't fit. Cadney and Dampers are warped. Why tell me? Tell the chief engineer. I did. He, he says they'll hold. Well, he's wrong. He's wrong. He's got a Harriman Institute degree in power electronics. And some drunk space rat says he's wrong. Skipper, I was damping jets when that shirt tail tad wore pins for buttons. I've got no time for you, Riesling. Casey, sound takeoff. Aye, sir. I'm telling you, Skipper, that number two jet's gonna blow. Dampers walk crooked like a turtle's back. Riesling, drag your deadhead out of here. Be low. Go ahead from control tower, Captain. All right, Casey. Fire one and four. <laughs> three watches before going into free flight. Riesling and I had the second watch. Damping was done by hand in those days with a multiplying vernier and a danger peeper. And as long as the peeper ticked off slow and steady, we knew the ship was safe for a while. Hey, Riesling, you better stow that guitar. If Jimmy Legs catches it, he'll blow a gasket. Don't worry, I can damp this tea kettle in my sleep. How's number two? Uh, All right, so far. (laughs) Did you ever hear that song about Hicks, the one that got me blacklisted?
12: Oh, the skipper is the father of his crew A gentle guiding light to me and you But on Mars he likes his women If they walk or if they're swimming Or if they've got six arms instead of two (laughs) Hey, the, the second verse is better. Now the skipper likes his liquor by the court Yes, he go from Mars to Venus for a
7: snort. He'll drink rocket fuel and... Hell, hi, Skip. Didn't see you come in. You were too busy, eh? Who's watching the gauge? I got an eye on it. Don't you fret none. Riesling, I'm going to fix it so you can't get a berth on a rocket-powered pogo stick. Report to Casey under arrest. I don't rightly think I will. You what? You kind of forget, Skipper. According to space code, you can't remove a jetman till the end of the watch. Right? Now look, you corn fed space now lawyer. Now, I... is that a rule or ain't it? Reasoning? Your ship is over at 2300, and I'll see you ride the rest of the way in slop locker. Maybe. Maybe. In the meantime, you clear out of my power room. I gotta make me up a third verse from a song. Power room. Damp number two, a point. Number two, I. Right. Hey, let me have that mic. Jimmy Legs, is that force drive boil up there? Give me that, Casey. Riesling, I've taken just about enough from and you. And I've got a little news for you, Skipper. Number two jet is bulging like a fat lady in a satin skirt. Listen, you clown, that Skipper, yet? I think I'm going to junk my song and start over. I could do much better this on you. This is the last time, Riesling. Damp number two, a point. Why, uh, sure out, I'll, I'll take it. You watch the gauge. Oh, now. Oh, She's bucking a little. Riesling, hit the emergency. Ah. She won't. Damn, Get that book. There on the lights. Riesling, Riesling, stay down behind the baffle. I've got to take a look. It's radioactive. Look out. All right now. What happened? Number two blew your lunk-headed space rat. You all right? Uh, a little sunburn. Uh, the lights are gone. Uh, what's the matter with the emergency circuits? Riesling. Jimmy Legs, get some lights down here. It's dark. Get the emergency light on. They're on, Riesling. They went on after the blast. The lights are on. What are you talking about, Jimmy Legs? Jimmy Legs, turn on the lights. It's dark. Turn on the lights! That blue, radioactive glow from the jets was the last thing Riesling ever saw. His optic nerve was burned out in an instant. He was in sick bay on the rest of the trip, and on the swing back, we set Riesling down at Drywater Mars. <laughs> <laughs> look out for the cable, Riesling. <sighs> Thanks, Hirschman. Hey, hey! Riesling! That you, Jimmy Legs? Hold up a minute, will you? Oh, uh. Riesling. Jimmy Legs, I promised I'd write a song about you, didn't I? Okay. Sure, Riesling, sure. Can't seem to sing like I used to. Hey, look, Riesling, uh, the men up on the bridge feel kind of bad about this. Yeah? Why didn't they think of that when Riesling told them that damper was shot? Now, Hertzman, that's all over. Sure, sure. That's all forgotten. Recently Lex, let's get out of the twin moon before I vomit. Now hold it, hold it. The skipper feels pretty bad about the whole thing recently. Kind of late for that, Jimmy Lakes. Feeling sorry don't hold no corn. The boys passed the hat. The skipper kicked in half a month's pay. Did he now? Then on principle, I suppose I ought to tell him to stuff it back up the jets. But you can't buy no drinking whiskey
9: on principle. I'll take it.
7: Here you are. I'll get it I'll be seeing you recently Sure, Jimmy Lee, sure Come on, Hertzman Let's get that drink
0: Dimension X is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room And mid Valley Mutations This week, brought to you by Acme Brand Mechanicals We listened to your complaints, and we heard you loud and clear. So the new model of Acme Brand Mechanicals no longer look like human beings, and now look like the lowly servants that they actually are. Acme Brand Mechanicals. What could possibly go wrong? And now, back to Dimension X.
7: all, just another space bum who didn't have the good sense to finish before his luck ran out. Well, Riesling holed up at the Twin Moons till his money was gone, then he hooked a ride on a crawler over to Marsopolis. It was a boom town then, with an industrial district mushrooming between the Lesser and Grand Canals. I ran into Riesling about two months later, playing his guitar on a jetty that ran out into the canal. He had a dirty rag tied over his eyes with a gentleman's knot, and his hat was on the wharf beside him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who's that? Wait a minute. Hertzman. Yeah, how have you been? Passable. Gee, is this a Venusian dime? Ah, no, it's a slug. <laughs> I figured. Well, how's it going? Singing again? Some. Work in saloons, mostly. But I've been thinking some funny songs, Hertzman. The words come out different than they used to Come on along the canal with me. Sure. Uh, here, take my arm. I know the way. That's a funny thing, Hertzman. I figure I know it better than other folks. Look back there, t- towards the city. What do you see? Factory towers. Ah, smell them from here. But it don't seem that way to me. I remember them old buildings. Old before Bible times on earth. Thin and graceful like... The fairy palaces my grandma used to tell about down home in the hills. They've torn them down now, or else blocked blocks them up with cinder bricks. Hertzman, when I stand out out here on the canal, I can see it the way it used to be. The water, ice blue with the stars shining up out of it. Way off there, the city with the towers sweeping up like a bird a flying off a tree. I can see it.
3: It's the dirtiest stink
7: hole in the system. Not always. Depends on how you see it.
12: Bone-tire the race that raised the towers, forgotten all.
7: Why don't you go home, Riesling? Home? Earth. I've been thinking about that, Hertzman. When I was a youngster down in the Ozarks, I used to climb a big old oak tree my daddy had in the dooryard. You could see the hills for miles, green and cool. I've been thinking about that. Why don't you go back then? I couldn't see them hills no more now. I couldn't stand to see black when I knew they was lying all around me, cool and green in the sun. I couldn't stand that. Yeah. Well, let's get back to town. Today I made three and a half dollars mush, and i am all had to drink it down before dawn. Come on! I lost track of Riesling after that. I shipped out on a slow freight to the Condor class for Luna, and he hitchhiked a ride to Venusburg on an oarship in the Triplanet run. So he beat around the system, Venusburg to Layport, to Drywater, to New Shanghai, and back. Any spaceport was his home, and no skipper had refused to lift the extra mass of Riesling and his battered guitar. He made up his songs, sitting out watches down in the power rooms with old shipmates, while the monotonous beat of the jet shook the hull plates. Hear the jet, hear the jet.
12: Snarl at your back When you're stretched on the rack Hear, Hear the, the jets. jets Feel the pain in your ship Feel the strain in your grip Hear the jets Feel her rise, feel her drive Strand steel come alive On her
7: jet, Little by little, his songs began to travel Along the spaceways ahead of him Raw spaceman songs with titles like Since the pusher met my cousin and the space is built for two. But more and more, we began to hear a different kind of song. Strange, sad
8: songs.
7: The ones you find printed in the centennial editions. Dark star passing. Death song of a woods cold. And then, finally, the green hills of Earth. It grew for 20 years, that's all. They say it started way back when Riesling was down in the labor camps on Venus, singing for the indentured man. Now, if someone will kindly pass a bottle. Oh, it is not much, Riesling. Not here. It'll do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is that stuff? Tequila. You cannot make him good here on Venus. What do you use? Scarab Bush. Home, it is... <laughs> Oh, it is different. Where are you from, son? Tasco, Mexico. It's a long way from here. Si, a long way. <laughs> How'd you come to sign on? The man comes out to the village from the city, in the shining automobile, very big. He says there is work. You signed the paper for ten years and you work.
6: Yes. Yes. Work.
7: There is work here, all right. Ten stinking hours in the jungle with machete. I tell you, when I get home to Earth, what'll you do, son? Ah. What is the use? We aren't getting home. You know
11: how many men die out there in the swamp today? Ten men. Ten.
7: What is the use? My mother, she's dead. My father don't care. A girl? Oh, she, she says she wait time. I don't know. Sure, son. You, uh, you sing some more, Eason. We drink, you sing. Maybe a new song, son.
12: We rot in the molds of Venus. We wretched, tainted breath. Foul on her flooded jungles. A-crawling with unclean dead. Let the...
6: What is the matter? Finish
7: the song raising. I can't. Can't yet, it just don't come. I'll finish it when I go home, that's it. When I go home to the hills. <sighs> now pass that bottle. The dawn whistle don't blow for four hours. That's where the Green Hill started. And I was there when it was finished. It was twenty years after that. And there wasn't a man flying or on the beach hadn't heard of Riesling and his songs. He was getting old now for a spaceman. He was a familiar figure through the whole system tall, gaunt, and with that dirty bandage tied across his blind eyes. I was chief jetman then on the old Falcon. We were cradled at Venus Alice Isle, scheduled for a direct jump to Great Lakes, Illinois, on Earth. I was checking in Dunnage when Riesling felt his way up the gangway and came through the lock. Riesling! Who's that? Mike Hertzman! 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 Well, what are you doing on this old home? I figured I'd ride her back to Earth. Earth? Are you going home, Riesling? I thought you were never going to make that run. I've been hankering to set foot in the Ozarks again. How about those hills? I've been singing about them so long now, Hertzman. I, I got to finish the song. I gotta set foot in the dooryard and hear the wind through that oak tree. About the last thing I'll be doing, I gotta get home before it... Riesling. There's a new company policy in the You see, now. Hertzman, I'm getting just a little old. Riesling, listen. No more deadhead rides. The new code book is in force. Oh, I seen code books come and go. The skipper's one of them youngsters, fresh out of Harriman Institute Cadet Training. He's liable to throw the book at you. At me? I've been around space as long as Halley's Comet and Brewster's Ridge. I'm going back to Earth, the cool green hills of Earth. I'm going home. All secure, Hertzman. What are you doing here? That's Riesling, Captain. Riesling, huh? I'm dragging it back to Earth, Captain. Not on this ship. Hertzman had this man removed. Funny thing, Captain, I, I sprained my shoulder sudden. Look, Skipper, you're a youngster. You're pretty new out here. I'm going home. You don't know what that means to an old man, going home. I can't take you. Against the Harriman code. Oh, now look, Skipper. You can slide me by to the distressed spaceman's clause in that code book. Distressed spaceman, my eye. You've been bumming around the system for 30 years. Skipper. You make me do something i never done for no one before. I'm an old man. An old blind man, and I want to go home. I ain't never crawled in front of a four-striper in my life, but you got to let me drag home. The law says a man's got a trip coming to him. You can stretch for a poor old blind man, can't you? you got to, Skipper. All right, old space rat. But keep out of the way. I run an
3: efficient ship, and I don't want any
7: trouble. No, sir, no No trouble. I'll just lay down to the power room. I kind of like to be near the jets when they blast off.
6: For Earth. (laughs)
0: Bringing you Dimension X. Brought to you by Acme Brand Mechanicals. Consider brand X Mechanicals. Their factory default settings are all over the place. Topsy-turvy, even. What a mess! Who could possibly decide which setting they need when they first open their new mechanical? This is why Acme Brand Mechanicals always start in the factory default mode safe. That means it can't possibly do harm unless someone throws that switch. Acme Brand Mechanicals. What could possibly go wrong? Now, let's return to the thrilling conclusion of Dimension X.
7: Sit down, Riesling. Take a load off your feet. Thanks, man. Stand by for left. Stand by. Best seat in the system. Power room and an old hawk glass ship. Power room, fire three. I see. The cool green hills of Earth. Still singing that recently? Oh, some. I changed her a little. Gonna finish her now, Mac. Going home to finish her. Yeah. Have you seen those new... uh, Automatic dampers, Riesling. Don't have to do nothing but sit and watch. Uh, hey, where, where's the peeper? Turned off. She's all automatic. And you have it soft nowadays. When I was twisting her tail, you had to stay awake. You got an old hand dampen plates on? All but the links. I ship them. They cover up the dials. You might need them. No, the automatics handle. Finally going home, Riesling, huh? Won't seem the same out past the moon. I've been waiting for this a long time, man. Eh? Gonna be good to get home, I reckon. The arching sky
12: is calling spacemen back. Ah!
7: Hey.
6: Hey, Mac,
7: Mac, Mac, you all right? I, I, I got the emergency. Oh, yeah. The hand-gapers, where are the leaks? Hey, hey, you ought to be on the wall or something.
6: Hey, hey. I, I got him. Power room, what's the
7: alarm? Coming in. Stay out. The place is hot. Radiation blast. Stay behind the baffle. I got the link shift. I, I can hand damper now. What's going on in there? I'm still in jet three. Is this McDougal? McDougal is dead. This is Riesling on watch.
8: Riesling, get out of there. You'll kill yourself.
7: Don't worry, Skipper. I know this power room like inside of my shirt. Somebody's got a damper. Riesling, I'm sending in a crew. No, 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 no use. The whole room will be hot for an hour and the other jets won't hold. Skipper, throw on the recording tape. What? Throw on the recording tape. I want to get something down. Tape's on, Riesling. Stop it, Riesling. The radiation will burn you down. Yeah, Rex. Yeah, pretty
6: soft sunburn. Pick me out of here with a dog. Bury me in a lead shield coffin. Oh. Okay, Skipper. She's
10: clean. Hey, radiation's getting brighter. I can almost see
7: Bright and rosy like the sunburn. ...like the sun over the hills down home. i got my song figured right now. Here it
6: comes.
8: We pray for
12: one last landing... ...on the globe that gave us birth. Let us rest our eyes on the fleecy skies... Of the cool green hills
6: of Earth. I can see him now. The hills. The sun. I can see the sun.
8: That's the way he died.
11: Riesling,
7: A blind singer of the spaceways, singing of the home he never reached. The cool, green hills of Earth.
8: Be with us at this same time next week for another adventure into the unknown world
0: of... Dimension X been listening to Dime Store Radio Theater on Sheena's Jungle Room, brought to you by Mid Valley Mutations. We hope to see you again next week. Until then, be seeing you.